If you would open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much just for the privilege to gather together as your people. We thank you, Father, for the people that we are able to gather with. We have friendships here, people that we've known for years. We've been encouraged uh, in our walk in life. We've been encouraged spiritually. Uh, we've, we've received help from others as we've tried to help others. Uh, Lord, there's been uh, a lot of great relationships established here in this body, and we're grateful for all of that, Father, and we thank you. And it is our desire, Father, as we gather together to do so because of who you are, uh, to gratefully bow in reverence before you together, to acknowledge who you are and what you've done for us, that, Father, you are to be served, and we do so, Father, with all of our heart, mind, and soul, and yet, Lord, we know we need the encouragement from you and from each other. And we ask, Lord, that our hearts this morning would be encouraged and strengthened as we continue our study. We do thank you and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. 2 Corinthians 7, beginning in verse 2. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together, and to live together. I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. But we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. So here in 2 Corinthians, Paul has earlier mentioned uh, of his experience with Titus and Macedonia. In the first couple of chapters of 2 Corinthians, uh, he talks about the comfort that he received from others, from God, and the word comfort reappears here. here. The appeal that Paul is making here is for he and this congregation to be reconciled to each other. Remember again, the background of what's going on. There were those who were trying to usurp his position. There were these accusations that were flowing around about Paul. He had written to them before. He had uh, written some strongly worded uh, letters, some of them we don't even have, where he was trying to correct them because of sin they had, they had fallen into and going in the wrong direction. And so there was all these issues that were going on with the church. And so there was some tension uh, that he was aware of between him and this group. Now, even though this tension existed, it wasn't that they hated him. It wasn't that. But just in the same way, there would be tension between people, even who are friends, when, when there's conflict, when something's come up, maybe they disagree on, or maybe one of them needed to correct the other because of something that happened. And so there's that awkwardness that is there. And so they had been really disobedient uh, before to the Lord. Um, and... Paul had pointed that out, and so it was time really now for them to receive him, 
to fellowship with him, especially because he's planning on coming to see them again. Early on in the letter, Paul had spoken of the trials he went through when he left Ephesus, and he was waiting for Titus, and he was worried about the situation at Corinth and what was happening in the church. And now here he kind of explains that God comforted him and gave him great joy. So when he says, make room in your hearts for us, is basically let your hearts be open to us. He says, look, you know, let's, let's work through this. And then he gets back to what he's done before, where he defends himself. But again, as he defends himself, it's not what he's defending himself to say he's great. He is def- he's been defending himself, pointing to his ministry, what the message is, and really pointing to some of his actions that may have been either misunderstood or maybe uh, misrepresented by others. So that's why he says here, we have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, we have taken advantage of no one. So there's this disclaimer uh, that he kind of throws out there. And he again specifies over and over again, no one. Meaning absolutely no one has uh, been wronged by him. There's not one person, they can't find evidence of that, it's not happened, and that was never his motive. And so after he says that, he's not going to dwell on that. He says that he's not saying this to condemn them. In other words, what he's saying here is, look, I'm not pointing this out to make you feel guilty because you've done wrong. Remember, he continues to treat the people here with great love and kindness. He knows that they have been misled. And And he is, in a sense, calling them on the carpet for allowing themselves to be led. But he recognizes that, you know, in what's been happening here in the church, in one sense, there's enough guilt to go around. But he doesn't question their motives. That's why he's not trying to condemn them. And so he reminds them here again. He says, I'm not condemning you when I say this. He said, but I said before in verse 3 that you are in our hearts. So again, he's reaffirming to them his love for them, that his his concern is for their well-being. He wants them to do well. He wants them to flourish as believers. And that's why he says to die together and to live together, that he's willing to die for them, he's willing to live really for them and with them, whatever is best for them. That's really what he's trying to communicate to them. Then he says, I'm acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. So again, Paul is kind of stating the obvious, and that is he's pretty upfront. You know, he's not really known for beating around the bush, right? He's kind of called him on the carpet before, and so he says, look, I'm, I'm, going, I'm speaking very straightforward with you. But again, he has great pride. And again, this is not pride of arrogance, but he just wants them to know that he is pleased with their progress as Christians. Now, there's progress, because remember, he got a report before from Titus. Titus said that, you know, when he wrote them that really hard letter before, you know, they weren't turning against him in mass. There were those who were repenting. They were, they were receiving the correction that he had sent their way. And so he was comforted by that because he was worried about the situation. So when he heard that, that they were basically repenting, they were turning from their sin, they were turning from their ways, he was comforted by that. And so in his affliction, as he's suffering and being in prison and all the things that are going on with him, he is overflowing with joy. So the situation then that he's in, which is bad enough, what's going on with them is not compounding his problem. He's basically saying, I'm, I'm just filled with joy with all of this stuff that's happening. But of course, because it's Paul, he has more to say. 
And so he says in verse 5, For even when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. So as Paul kind of goes through this section here that we just read, it is clear, I think, to us that Paul's frame of mind, really the state that he was in physically, was far from tranquil. He had no rest. Paul was not one who was always riding a spiritual high. He was a human being like the rest of us and experienced the ups and downs of life. And he was affected emotionally, very deeply by things that were going on. He was affected deeply, and I believe in most cases he wasn't sinning, but he was affected because he greatly cared about them. When I am told that some guy named David in California suffered a heart attack this morning, doesn't really affect me. I don't know David. No, I, I, have, I don't have, I'm, there's no emotional investment in that. I know every day there are people who are affected by heart attacks. I know that. It's not that I'm hardened to that. I just I don't know them. But if I was told this morning that one of you suffered a heart attack, I would be affected deeply. I would be concerned. I would immediately begin to pray. We would immediately want to find out, okay, what's going on? What can we do to help? What's going on now? What's the latest report? You know, was it a bad heart attack or was it mild? Is he already at the doctor? I mean, just on and on. Who's this cardiologist? Call Dr. Sue. You know, whatever, whatever the case happens to be, that the idea there is, you know, we, we were affected by that. And so Paul is affected by these things. So we could say that he was, he was deeply saddened. I don't like to use the word depressed. It's not a good word, I don't think. It's overused, even though we do experience depression. But he was deeply saddened by the things that were going on. And so he candidly admits that. He talks about the conflicts, and there was even fear. And his greatest fear wasn't the persecution he was experiencing. Again, it was a fear for them. A fear that they would not flourish spiritually, and they would do well. And so, in the midst of this anxiousness, that he was experiencing, Titus came. And Titus was able to comfort him with the words of truth. What did Titus say? Well, again, what he mentioned, that the people at Corinth, they had gotten this letter by the time, you know, there were several letters that Paul wrote, we just have a couple of them, and they loved Paul. They were zealous for the Lord. They were longing to see Paul. They weren't of a group saying, yeah, well, we don't care when he comes back again. That guy's a bum. There was none of that going on. And so when he heard what Titus said, he was relieved and he was comforted by that, even to the point that I believe that his surroundings and what he was going through, that burden was lifted. This is no longer a big deal. Uh, he was able to endure it because he knew that he, that he was being effective in his influence on these other individuals. And so his deep sorrow then turned into joy. So then he says in verse 8, For even if I made you grieve with my letter... I do not regret it, though I did regret it. Now, again, as, as if you just kind of think for a moment, we know that Paul's not, you know, he's not schizophrenic when this is going on. He knows what his, his, how his letter affected them emotionally. He understands that. And so he, in one sense, he does regret that he had to do that. There was regret he had to do that. At the same time, 
He doesn't regret it. It's because he knows it needed to be done. And he says, I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. You know, it's not this ongoing thing. It was for a while because things were taken care of. So he says, as it is, so as it stands now, I rejoice. But again, he wants him to understand, I'm not rejoicing because you were grieved. But I am rejoicing because you were grieved in a particular way. And that is unto repentance, which is what he had been praying for and longing for. And then he says, because you felt what? A godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. I've been asked before, or not really asked, but, you know, especially people who are older, who are, who are used to, or maybe in their past they've heard, you know, what we call the, higher, the, the fire and brimstone preachers, the ones that are screaming at you and yelling at you. Um, in some cases, I'm, I'm not sure yelling is always bad, but I do think that in maybe many cases, there was an attempt by some in their zealousness to try to make people feel guilty. And I don't believe in doing that. If I am, a, if I am able to make you feel guilty, what have I accomplished? Not much of anything. Now, many of you, I do want you to feel guilty. But I want you to feel guilty because you're convicted by the Spirit of God through the Word of God. Not because I'm yelling. If I'm yelling and you feel guilty, when I stop yelling and you leave, you're relieved. Well, that's done. You know, I hope it doesn't do that again next week and you go have your fried chicken or whatever you're going to eat. All right? But if you're convicted by the Spirit of God, that's going to bring about what we pray for is a godly kind of grief where there's, there's no relief because you're no longer hearing the words. It lingers because you know that there's this problem that you have or difficulties that you're experiencing and they need to be dealt with. So that's what Paul's doing. He's looking back in, uh, at the situation. He's, in a sense, reminiscing. And as he sent this bold and a blunt letter to, with Titus, where he was calling sin, sin. And he was calling out the perpetrators. And it stung them. I came across this quote, and I don't know who was the original person to make this. I'm sure this has been around for a long time. But uh, one of the commentaries I read, this was a quote from a sermon that this guy heard. And this is what the preacher said. It's okay to hurt people when necessary, but it's not okay to harm them. And we do that as parents. Sometimes we have to hurt our children, but we never harm them. There's a difference. And when we correct them, whether we spank them or whatever, whatever we, we're going to do, sometimes we hurt them. Maybe we even hurt their feelings. Right? But we're not harming them. It's always corrective. Now, my parents never did this, but I had friends who grew up in various Asian homes, and sometimes when you were punished for wrongdoing, they would put some uncooked rice on the hardwood floor and then make you kneel in the corner on it. That would be painful. I don't know if that's worse than a spanking or not. I think the spanking is a lot to just get it over with, because uh, I had some friends who had to kneel for quite a while. But again, in the end, the goal of the parent is not to harm the, the, their child, even though they may need to hurt them. So I want you to listen to this now, because this is a very important concept. Every single person lives with regrets. Unfortunately, some, maybe many, but some never get beyond regret to true repentance. So we need to make sure that we keep that in our minds, that regret... Though it may be, in a sense, good, 
if that's all that we have, it is unhelpful and it is not profitable and it is not beneficial. What we want is repentance. Even if you don't use the word repentance, we want repentance. When you, if you, if you have more than one child and, and they end up arguing or fighting, we want them to regret that they've been caught and that this is going on and what they've done. We want that. But that's not all we want. What we want to see is a change in their behavior, a change in their attitude. That's, that's what is involved in repentance. So Paul wants them to understand really the difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. That's the difference between regret and repentance. Now there's two very well-known biblical examples of this. There's Judas Iscariot and there's David, the king of Judah, or the king of Israel. Now we know that when David was, was eventually confronted with his great sin with Bathsheba, not only was there regret, there was repentance. And out of that we read Psalm 51, uh, and, and we can read all about that there. With Judas Iscariot, when things came to light for him after he betrayed Jesus, he had regret. He didn't repent. And he went and he hung himself. And he died in his sin. That's the difference between the two. And again, the difference is not the suicide. Don't get all caught up in that. It is how they ended up. There was no repentance. There's no evidence that Judas repented anywhere for what he had done. But there definitely was regret. And so even though a person can feel deep regret, and there can be a great deal of emotion with regret, it's not enough. Regret never restores a relationship. Repentance does. You see, this topic in 2 Corinthians 7 is found in the context of this loving confrontation between Paul, who really was the pastor of these people in the beginning, and his people. And so it's important that we understand what's going on here in that context. Again, remember the kind of the, the outline or the chronology of what's gone on. Paul established the church. He spent 18 months laying a strong foundation of truth, discipling leaders. He left to continue church planting, uh, in other places. Unfortunately, some of those who, who stepped into leadership began to move the congregation in a new direction, a new direction philosophically, doctrinally, and even morally. Some of these leaders who were false teachers knew they could never pull the wool over the eyes of the people as long as Paul was held in high esteem. So they undertook to discredit the apostle, ridiculing him for his looks, his lack of eloquence, his suffering, and even such petty things as the changing of his travel plans. It was an unscrupulous campaign of character assassination. And Paul was clearly hurt by that. And he was hurt by these charges. And Paul could have allowed himself to withdraw emotionally from these people. He could have felt sorry for himself. He could have even attacked them for their ingratitude, which is what we often do. We feel sorry for ourselves, and then there's no limit to the things that we may do or say. But Paul, in a sense, took the high road. In a sense... He was what we mean by the phrase, he was the bigger man. He didn't allow these things that in a sense were petty to cause him to react negatively to them. He kept the goal in mind. He wanted them to grow spiritually. He knew, in one sense, objectively, what they had done was wrong. But instead of just dealing with it on the personal level, he wanted to get back to the most important level, which is how that affected their relationship with God and then also their future. 
along the way, knowing that they responded correctly to the teaching of the word of God, they would be reconciled. And he wants that to be done. And so, instead of attacking them, he reaches out and he begs them to open their hearts to them, to him. He reminds them again that during the whole time he was with them, he hadn't wronged anyone, he hadn't corrupted anyone, he hadn't exploited anyone. He loved them so much he was willing to die for them, or, or again, live with them, whichever was going to promote their best welfare. So I want to take just a few moments this morning as we close just to focus on the word repentance. Because there's been, again, there's been some bad teaching in the church through the years when it comes to repentance. And I don't know where this is at now, looking at the church as a whole, but I know that for quite a while there was this movement where there were those who were emphasizing that when it came to repentance, they were kind of putting a, 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 a wall around it and saying that it only meant one thing, that it only meant that you would change your mind in this sense about God. And this idea that we have that repentance includes a changing of your life, that, that we were somehow adding works to salvation. Now, that's a misrepresentation of all what's going on, but I want to take a look at that just for a few moments this morning to make sure that we are dealing with repentance in a proper way and in a biblical way. So the, the word in the Greek language is metanoia, and it literally means afterthought. It means to think after, and it does imply a change of mind. So when you look at the New Testament, it becomes clear uh, that this word means much more, though, than just changing of your mind. It includes a complete change of heart, attitude, interest, and direction. So this is where sometimes when you look up a certain word in, a, in maybe a Greek dictionary, maybe even in a decent Greek dictionary, it's not going to be as helpful as it could be because just the strict definition of the word doesn't give you the full grasp of what is meant when the individual uses that. We do that sometimes in discussions with people. Somebody may be using a particular word, but we notice in the way they use it or the context of the sentence or whatever they're using it in, that, that for them there's either a, they're emphasizing something else, maybe misusing it, and so we may ask, well, when you say, like for example, I may ask a person, when you say you believe in God, what do you mean by that? Because I don't know what they mean by God. I know what I mean by God. And they, they well, you know how it is, you know, like at a higher power. Okay, now I understand what you mean. So we're not talking about the God of the Bible. You believe in just a higher power. See, it's very clarifying. So when it comes to the word repentance here, the word repentance, if you look it up in a, in, and just take the strict definition in a Greek dictionary, it's not going to give you the full orb meaning of the word. We want to see how the word is used in Scripture and kind of, kind of you know, unpack it, so to speak, in the way that that goes. So in the Greek culture, metanoia was a word that referred to a change of mind regarding anything. But when it was brought over to the New Testament, then it's... It, it's limiting to being only a change of mind began to expand. And so repentance is a thorough change of a man's natural heart on the subject of sin. Vincent, there's a collection of writings, a several volume a book called Vincent's Word Studies. And again, he was a, a Greek scholar, and so he does a lot of work uh, in the Greek language. And so that's why sometimes in certain Greek dictionaries, in the, in the, the references we use for the Bible, that sometimes there's a lot of paragraphs about some word. And normally what's going on there is the author of, of, the, uh, of this word study is taking a word and he's going to explain to you how it was used in the Greek language and how they understood it. 
And then if the word has maybe been beefier in its, in, in its usage in the scripture, they're going to show you how that was done. And they're going to give you the references. You can look at them. They're going to be able to explain how that was done. So that's what he does here. And so he says when it comes to a repentance, it is primarily an afterthought, different from the former thought. Then it is a change of mind which issues in regret and in change of conduct. So that's how the New Testament uses the word that's thrown in there. In fact, we, we hear where um, John the Baptist one time mentioned to those he was preaching to that they needed to do the works worthy of what? Repentance. He threw those things together. He wanted, he wanted to know that it's not a separate thing where you repent and then 10 years later we have a change. No, he's throwing them together. You need to right now do those things that show the work of repentance that that's going on in your life and heart. And we always talk about that in, in reference to God. So he says there that, the, that these latter ideas have been imported into the word by scriptural usage. They do not lie in the etymological study or by its primary usage. Repentance then has been rightly defined as, and this is where he gets kind of eloquent because I don't speak this way. He says that repentance is such a virtuous alteration of the mind and purpose as begets a like virtuous change in the life and practice. So again, the idea is that when it comes to repentance, when, we, when, when a person repents in a Christian sense, it is something that's also seen. It's not just something that's said. If you're talking to a husband and wife who are going through difficulties, let's say one is mistreating the other, and, that, and one of them admits that that's going on, and may even say that they are sorry, and even ask for forgiveness. But we would, we would not necessarily use their repentance if they go home and for the next several weeks nothing changes. We say, okay, well, I think maybe that person misunderstood of what we're talking about. This is not about just being sorry. This is not just about, you know, asking for forgiveness. They forgive me. Okay, good. Now we can go on. No, there needs to be a change in behavior. I remember one time my dad told me about a, a, a man that he used to work with when he was in the Navy. And uh, through the long course of several years, my dad ended up leading this man to the Lord. Now, this man, before he became a believer, he was married to a woman who was blind. And I don't remember how many years they were married, but there was something in particular he would do on weekends for entertainment. He would move the furniture in the house. Because, you know, if you were married to a blind person, they memorize in their minds the layout of the house so they don't run into the furniture. You change the furniture without them knowing there's going to be some accidents along the way and they have to kind of relearn where things are. And he thought that was the funniest thing. My dad was speaking to his wife because he got to know her and she said that, I can't remember his name, but she said that she knew the day that he had become a believer. And I said, how did you know that? She goes, he stopped moving the furniture. See, there was real repentance there on the part of this man. His behavior changed immediately. Most of us would never think that to not move furniture would be involved in repentance, but in his case it was. And so we understand that. So repentance then again is not something we can do unless we have the prompting of the Holy Spirit. It is a gift from God. So repentance is not a natural thing that we do as, as Christians or as, as human beings. We, we require the help of God. 
It's a very popular passage, well-known passage. Let me read this to you. Because we should pray that God gives us repentance. That's why, hopefully, as we go through these kinds of things, you continue to learn as a believer more and more why we have in our service this prayer of confession. Why are we doing that? Well, the idea, once again, is that even though we do repent when we come to Christ, and, and that's important, it's not where we repent of our sin and we never repent again. No, we repent of our sin, and then we begin to begin a life, and this is not new with me, I got this from others, but we now begin to live a life of repentance. I become aware of my sin, of my ongoing sin, of when I sin, when I sin against God and others, and, and I want to deal with that. And I don't, as a Christian, just you know, say to someone, well, well, I'm forgiven by God, so I'm sorry for what I did. You know, it's, you know, it's how it is. And then the next day, yeah, well, you know, but remember, I'm a Christian, I'm forgiven. But yeah, I know I should have done that, I'm, I'm sorry. And we just don't change. No, there's this idea that we represent God in all that we do, that God has saved us for himself to be a holy people. And part of that process is you and I needing to repent, a change of heart, change of mind, change of life, so that our life coincides with and is a representation of who Christ is. So that our life becomes, as people have said, we become the hands and feet of Jesus. We need, we need to expand that. I need to become the hands and feet of Jesus. I need to become a reflection of the attitudes of Jesus. I need to respond like Jesus would respond. I need to have the emotions and display the emotions that Jesus would display. That's what needs to happen. And for, for that to take place, there needs to be a great deal of change in my life. 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning of verse 24. And the Lord's servant, so that would be all of us, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. So it doesn't mean that you and I never argue, but we don't become argumentative. We're not knowing for being an argumentative person. We're not looking for the quarrel. So the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. So it's even kind to those who disrespect you. It's kind to your wife or your husband. It's kind to whoever. We are kind to everyone. Able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So the idea here of how we are to be with others and how we are to teach and how we are to correct is so that God will grant them repentance. It's a gift from God. And as God grants them repentance, it leads to a knowledge of the truth. As they turn away from their sin, they, their minds are open now to the truth, which is the truth of Jesus Christ, and in so doing, they will what? Escape the snare of the devil because they have been captured by him to do his will. And so what we should be praying for ourselves and for others is that we would repent, that we would live a life of repentance. So we don't only pray for those that we know are living in sin to repent, though we do that, but we do want to pray for each other. As we pray for each other's holiness, as we pray that we grow in purity as believers, we then should pray. If you're, if you're stuck one day, say, you know, I, I need to pray for Nepo. I don't, I don't even know what's going on in Nepo's life. Well, Nepo's a human being. That's helpful. And so I can say, you know, Lord, I know that as human beings, 
And this isn't a knock on Nepo, but he is young. I know how it is with young men. And with young men, it can be really hard to repent when we do wrong. So I don't know what's going on with Nepo, but I know that every young believer needs this. And so I, I pray for him that you would grant him repentance that's needed in his life, whether it's with his wife or at his job or whatever's going on. And Lord, if he doesn't need repentance, then I thank you for that, that he's living his life in that way. And I pray that you would help him as he pursues purity and holiness as a Christian. Who here does not want someone to pray for them like that? I dare you to raise your hand. Because <laughs> we all know it's not the Christian thing to do. But the idea is, is that's how we can pray. So there are a lot of ways we can pray for each other, even though we may not know all the specifics of each other that are truly helpful. And I guarantee you that that is helpful. We're asking the God of the universe to intervene in his life in that particular way. And I, I know nothing about what's going on. And that can be most beneficial. Most beneficial for him and even beneficial for me. So, again, if you, hopefully you do pray for others in our church and not only when there's any, an urgent prayer request that goes out. I do think that all of us should be involved in a ministry of prayer for each other. I think all of us should be praying through our directory. Whether you pray for only one family a week or you do one page a week, that's up to you. But I do think we should be lifting each other up in prayer. And this is how we, when you, and again, we may not know what's going on with them physically, but you know, that's just a minor, that's a minor aspect of our prayers. We want to encourage each other spiritually. And this we can pray. This will honor God. This brings glory to Christ. This will bring greater maturity in the life of, the, of, of this body of believers. It'll be, it'll be beneficial. If, if God is answering that prayer, as I pray for Nepo, his marriage, I'm not saying it's bad, but it still gets even better. The relationship he has with those at work, it may not be bad, but it gets even better. His relationship with other people in church may not be bad, but it's going to get better. I'm not saying he's immature, but he'll become more mature. That's how we pray for each other. That's a great benefit to God. That's how we can truly minister and do the work of God with each other. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your goodness and grace and love. And Father, we, we do know intellectually that we have things that we need to repent of. There are things we hold on to, things we ignore, things we don't want to deal with. And sometimes we become angry and we feel justified in the wrong that we've done. And we need to repent. Pray, Lord, you would help us to, to desire that, to embrace that. That you would even change our hearts to long for those things that you long for us. I ask, Lord, that you would remind us to pray for each other and to pray in this manner. Father, we are grateful that we can uphold and strengthen each other in this way even without others specifically knowing that we're praying for them in this manner. But knowing, Lord, that to do so not only honors you, but it is truly and genuinely beneficial in the life of the church. And so, Father, I pray that collectively all of us would desire for a greater degree of repentance and willingness to repent in our lives as believers. And with the humility and the maturity that brings along 
to us, we pray, Lord, that you would then use us in a greater degree to encourage believers and share the love of Christ with non-believers. Thank you, Father, again for your word and for this testimony. We do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.